Welcome to Living With, a podcast about the stories and people behind Health Union. Health Union integrates the power of human connection and technology, uniting people in the shared experiences of life with chronic health conditions. I'm Emily Downward. Rick Nash is a contributor and moderator for HepatitisC.net. Rick was diagnosed with hepatitis C at the young age of 12. I came home from tennis camp. Uh, I know I was a little tired. It was a little hot that day. And I peed a weird color. Mm-hmm. And I told my dad, and he's like, well, that's not supposed to happen. And so we went to the hospital, or first we went down to urgent care. They checked it out, and they're like, well, we should probably run a biopsy. Because, you know, it was 1999, and that's what they did. They did a biopsy on my liver, my kidney, and my spleen because they really weren't sure where. They just noted that there was blood in the urine, so they knew it was coming from my GI system somewhere. Mm. Checked everything, and they said, okay, looks like your your kidney and your spleen are fine. Great operating. But uh, your liver, on the other hand, we found hepatitis C. And it's super weird for a 12-year-old to have hep C, so let's just test your whole family. And they did. And they found out my brother and my dad were clean, totally fine. Um, But my mom, on the other hand, turned out to be the source. So it was a bit devastating for our family as a whole, um, not just because I, I found out that I had hepatitis C, but also that my mom did as well. Yeah. And so did she give it to you when she was pregnant with you? I'm a, ver- I'm a vertical transmission, which means I was likely infected at birth. So even though 12 is young to be diagnosed with it, having it for 12 years, that can really cause some problems. Yeah. It's known as a disease of decades because it takes about 20 to 30 years for it to really start kicking into gear. And I can definitely say that by the age of 22, things started to kick into gear. Wow. When Rick and his mom were diagnosed, treatment for hepatitis C was very different from what is now available. The older treatments were physically very difficult and weren't as effective in getting rid of the virus. As a young man, Rick watched his mom go through three treatments before she was cured of hep C. For me, it was a huge reflection of what I would have to go through mm. because, you know, that's what I was told was this is the only way out. This is the only way to do this. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's a weird thing <laughs> absorbing that when you're in your teens. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her second treatment, however, um, was on the pegylated interferon, which is the same one that I would eventually go on for my first treatment. Um, it was a little easier, although a little is really the operative word there, um, just because you don't inject yourself three times a week. You only had to do it once a week. So it was a little bit nicer in that way. Um, but the injection methods were so weird. The early pill things, the early injection things weren't like a you know, like just a needle that was filled with the substance then you would inject. They did that later. But the first ones were these complicated machineries that, that almost resembled like an EpiPen, except it was more complicated and you had to hold it at specific angles at certain times and stuff. And it was just, the instruction sheet was like, ten, was, was this huge 10-page document folded into, the, into a size of a pamphlet you could fit in your pocket. Whoa. And it was... It, it, the treatments were not were not great. These new ones, though, way better. So I started on that that, that pegylated uh, interferon and ribavirin, mm-hmm. and my first two rounds, because uh, I did one um, when I was uh, just when I was in my senior year of college, um, because I decided this would be a good time to do it. And 
<clears throat> you know, I, I, I did the treatment and uh, my viral load started at about 3 million uh, when I started the treatment. And one month in, it stayed at 3 million. Two months in, it kind of ticked up a little bit to 3.1. Oh, no. And three months in, it went down to 3.1 again. So there was no real shift or movement. And so we had to scrap it. Um, so I just sat there for three months and, you know, went through all of this for nothing. And at the time, um, I also was engaged and also graduated my senior year. So it was a very complicated time. Um, and my treatment ended as well as my engagement right around the same time because mm. they were almost linked in a lot of ways. Um, and that first treatment was rough. I would then take that same treatment uh, not two years later. But the difference was that my doctor decided to say, okay, so we're going to double the dosage and we're going to see if it works better. Oh, um, because there had been some clinical guidance that says that in certain cases it can work better. And I mean, keep in mind, this is before RAVs really kind of hit the map. And RAVs are this thing that basically after treatment and if you fail a treatment, uh, they kind of pop up. They're these mutations, they're these problems that make it harder to get treated the next time. And so they, were, they really weren't on the map that much at this time so, because there weren't options to deal with them. So that second treatment turns out not only was very, very hard, it was because it was twice as much as I had taken before. And this is interferon and ribavirin. So it's interferon, which is kind of what your body naturally produces, that, uh, you know, that, that biological response, but it's times 100. So instead, think of your, like, sickest day and just times it by 100, and that's what it was for three months. Oh, and, and the ribavirin makes you tired, makes you agitated, and, and combine it with that, and you're just a horrible person for three months. And that's kind of how it was, you know, you, you just kind of dealt with it and moved forward. But unfortunately for me, the, again, just like the first treatment, the second treatment failed, you know, and so then I moved on to my uh, third, but that took a long time because I ran into some trouble in the meantime, which was a matter of keeping health insurance because this was when the ACA was happening. This was when all that stuff was happening. I happened to be turning 26 during that time period. And so it was, I, I didn't get a huge amount of that coverage situation. I only got about two months out of it. And then uh, I turned 26 and then that was gone. So I had to maintain my health insurance elsewhere because unfortunately I couldn't find a full-time job because when I worked for the school district at the time, um, they worked me 39 hours and didn't give me benefits. Oh. Intentional. So, yeah. And so it, it was kind of a struggle in terms of figuring out how to do my next treatment. And so I had to wait until I had, um, because the, the marketplace wasn't available yet. So I, I couldn't buy outside insurance. And if I did, I would have to go through like a, one of the, the entrepreneur plans and stuff. And those are really expensive at the time. Um, and really, and, or they didn't cover anything. And so either, so either way it was very complicated. So the only thing I could do at the time was to use Cobra to extend the coverage that my mom had given me, which cost me about $900 a month. Oh, wow. um, and so that was a bit, it was a bit tricky, uh, to kind of get all that finagled and finally get to the insurance point where everything was stable. And then I could take my third to, then I could take my third treatment. And with that third treatment, um, I was really stoked because my mom got cured off it. So I figured, hey, you know, I, I got the same virus from her. I probably have the same RAVs. You know, this is a good shot. There's a good chance. Mm -hmm. My mom was successful in being, she was cured off this treatment. But the thing was, is that the treatment is a six-month treatment, effectively. And she was on it for eight and a half. 
And the reason why was because she was right there, right on that line of getting zero. And she talked with her doctors, got the extension, everything else, because back at the time, those treatments were so much more experimental and so and had such a lower potential for um, success. And so few people were able to take them because of the warehousing effect, where a lot of hepatitis C patients um, basically sat there and not taking treatment, not taking any kind of cure because injection therapy at the time was discouraged. Um, and so since this was still an injection therapy, my mom was like, all right, so let's, let's see if we can push for it. And they allowed it um, with a few caveats. It, it, was, it was rough. She barely got through it. And knowing that, I walked into mine. And when I did, um, you know, I prepped everybody at work beforehand, which is an entire conversation. Um, because, you know, when, when, when talking to people about your illness is one thing, but talking to them about them in a professional setting, especially when you're going to be missing work, is something that it's good to have a little knowledge of FMLA on, on, on you know, on hand, yeah. um, which I had in my back pocket because I was like, OK, if anything comes if anything comes to anything, you know, I've talked to my doctor, I've got a, I've got FMLA, I'll, I'll signed up and ready to go. But, you know, I didn't want to use it unless I needed to. Um, because, you know, you, you do get, it, it does cover your time off, but it doesn't pay for it. Um, and so for me, for my third treatment, uh, I took it and, you know, I, it, it, it took me out a few days from work, um, because it was a little hard. Um, cause it was like the other previous treatments, except they tacked in a new thing, which was called Incivic. And Incivic was the first DAA. It was the first direct acting antiviral, which is the kind of the new meds that we take now, except that one required the. Um, injection therapy and everything else it was a first gen. It was a really a beta testing in a lot of ways. Um, and when I took it, um, I made it through the incivic portion, which means I made it through the first three months. But just like the previous three treatments, three months was my was my breaking point. Hmm. And unfortunately for me, I I noticed some signs um, that I had that I had felt before um, because I had had an esophageal bleed before, which is when you know you have veins in your esophagus burst and start bleeding internally. Um, and before I'd noticed it because I was lightheaded and I felt this, this terrible sickness in my stomach. And it, there, were a, there were a few different things. And, and tar, black tarry stool was another thing that was associated. I hadn't reached that point at this point, but some of the symptoms felt similar. So I decided not to risk it and go into the hospital. And I am very glad I did. Um, because knowing those risk signs, knowing those signs definitely saved my life. Um, and I, because I, the second I got into the ER, um, I asked them for a, um, uh, for a bin to puke in. And the second I did, just projectile vomit, just bright red, red blood, just all over the ER. Oh, no. And turns out, that's how you get a, you know, fast pass right through a bed. <laughs> you know, just vomit blood all over the ER and bam, they just put you right in the bed. Um, so I didn't have to wait two hours, which is solid. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. But, you know, yeah, but I mean, hey, I lost two units of blood in the process. So like, you know, wow. one way or another. Wow. And uh, thankfully, they patched me up and got me out within a few days. It was great. But the downside was my doctor said, hey, you're done. Yeah. You're off treatment. That's this, this stuff's going to kill you at the mm. end of the day. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I see that. <laughs> but, you know, like my mom before me, I wanted to push forward on it. Um, unfortunately, uh, it that particular event qualified for stopping me for treatment period. So I couldn't even push forward from that. Um, and so I was, I was trapped in it and I was like, you know what, I'm done. I, this nearly killed me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this as, as what it is and just chill with it. And, you know, it didn't, it, it, it didn't 
cure me. It didn't do much. But what it did do is it did bring my viral load down, um, which is something the other treatments didn't do. And that's why I was so excited about it, because it brought my viral load down to, you know, a few hundred, which was oh, nothing. Wow. I was like, this is amazing. I've gone down from, you know, four million to three to a few hundred. This is insane. Yeah. And then to find out that I couldn't get cured from it because my body wouldn't take it, I was kind of beside myself for a while. And it didn't help that also um, that maybe uh, about seven months prior to starting treatment, I was hit by a car. Um, and so oh, like wow. my femur was messed up. So like I, I, I was just in a, I was just in a terrible place and I was like, okay, I need to get around, get up in this. And when you fail these things repeatedly and when you, when these things here, it, it gets very discouraging. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of find a way to rebuild yourself. And for me, I, you know, hit the gym. I started doing more workouts. I, I, and for me by hitting the gym, I meant I brought in weights to work because I worked at, at a call center at the time. Um, and so I would just, lift weights while on the phone. I would exercise while on the phone for, you know, six hours. Um, I set myself to the point where I was like, no, I'm going to be as healthy as I humanly can. Cause before I had done so with food and other stuff, but in this case I was like, no, I'm going to prep for this treatment like no other. And I just went ham. Cause the previous one beforehand, I had done the same thing. Cause I was like, I just need to do this. I need to get myself in the best shape I can, you know, beforehand. And you know, things, things were, things were looking good until they weren't. And, uh, um, unfortunately when I, when I turned 24, symptoms started to become to the point where I was in end stage liver disease and I didn't fully understand what re what end stage liver disease really mean. And when I was 24, it was, I was like, okay, this isn't so bad. This isn't, I mean, this isn't terrible. You know, I'm bleeding all the time and this is not great. And I have a bunch of medications, but I'm medically controlled. It's fine. But when I was 26, that stopped being the case. Um, I could no longer as easily medically control things. And my legs started to swell because of the ascites and I started to no longer be able to work. And so I had to leave work. I guess I couldn't anymore. And I became legally disabled because my liver had reached the point where I couldn't do normal things. I couldn't do basic math because of my hepatic encephalopathy. It accelerated to the point where I just couldn't do anything. Um, and so that next treatment, that fourth treatment, um, was uh, a a new one, one of the new generation DAA, Sovaldi Elysio. And it the reason for the combination was because, like I said before, those RAVs, I had them. I had something called a Q80K polymorphism. And this is this was one of the first kind of labels of like the sub sub, you know, genotypes and stuff. And this was one of those first RAVs. And this was for me, they were like, okay, well, because of the Q80K polymorphism, he can't just take Sovaldi. He needs to have this other thing in there. And so they threw in Elysio. And so I did that for, uh, what was it, for 12 weeks. Um, and we, we couldn't get an extension because it was uh, because we had to do it off-label. Um, the challenge when you have, when you have RAVs at this time um, was that uh, the only way you could get medication was off-label, um, and which leaves you kind of at risk to, um, you know, insurance's whims when you need an extension or if you need to change something. Um, Because you can get it passed, but you just can't keep it going. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so that fourth treatment, I was so stoked. It was easier. It was nicer. It was, I mean, it was still annoying. I still had righteous headaches and, and and I was a lot more moody and the light was, I, photosensitivity was awful. 
And there were some days that were worse than others, but that was more so attributed to the end-stage liver disease than it was the treatment. And the thing was that after about a month and a half, my viral load had shot down to like nothing. I was chilling in the thousands. And I was amazed that by the end of the treatment, I had hit a zero. I cleared. And I was blown away. I was like, this is amazing. This is going to be the best thing. This is fantastic. I'm cured. I'm done. Fourth time's the charm. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> oh. um, you know, it, it's, yeah. I, about two and a half weeks later, I went to a diner with some friends and, um, I was a little yellow walking in and I didn't really entirely realize just how much. And after getting, picking up CDF at the diner and popping into the hospital, I found out exactly how yellow I was when they told me my INR was nothing and my bilirubin count was through the roof. Mm. And so what that means is that means I moved the heck up on that transplant list. <laughs> I suddenly, suddenly shot, shot up and to the point where they were like, well, we're looking at uh, bringing you over for uh, over to the transplant ward where you're going to just wait for a liver because at this point, like your your numbers aren't shooting down and it's not looking good. And I just looked like a Simpsons character. I was just super yellow. My eyes were golden, and you know, uh, the only the only solace I had really was the fact that I had C diff, which is a weird thing to say. But the benefit of having C diff in a hospital is that you get your own room. Um, <laughs> with, the downside to having Cetus at Cetus as a hospital is that you don't get to eat or drink anything um, because you're just, uh, everything's leaving, you know, mm-hmm. the fire sale inside and everything must go. Um, but yeah, so it was a, it was a, it was a challenging time. And, and it was, it was, it was interesting because for me, I always had my friends and my support. Like they were, they were the biggest support of all of this because with, through that period of time, my room was never empty. Every time I always had friends, family, anybody just coming by, bringing things, bringing stuff. And I also told everyone, I also told everyone to bring like, it's a boy and like pregnancy stuff just to confuse <laughs> all of the, all the staff that would walk by because they'd be like, what are you, what is this? This isn't, oh, this isn't OBGYN. Why are all this kid stuff here? I just wanted to just mess with the staff because I was like, this would be funny. Um, and so there were just all these stuffed animals on the, on the, on the, on the extra thing. And it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was cool. But, um, what was not cool was the fact that my doctor then informed me that I had to have to again, that my, that just came right back. But you know, that's kind of what happens because the thing about, um, treatment is that you're not cured when you're done. It takes a while. So after you're done with treatment, there's what's called the SVR, sustained viral response. And once that first treatment's finished, you get an SVR at the first part, which goes, okay, cool, you've got one, and that's good. You need another one at four or eight weeks, um, which kind of gives you a progress report, really, because 12 is the big one. 12 is the one where most people are cured, and that means 12 weeks out from treatment is when they test you again, and if you no longer have hep C then, then you're cured. For me, since I was a special scenario, they gave me 24 weeks. They were like, let's give you a little more time since you seem to not be good at this. And I was like, granted. <laughs> so, you know, and so my doc told me, all right, but here's good news. The good news is that there's another treatment available. And I was stoked and ready to go on it. And it was Harvoni. And they were like, hey, so given your scenario, given how bad your liver is and everything else, we're going to put you on for 24 weeks. 
and within a few weeks out of my 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 hospital visit, I started up Parvoni. Also, it's really weird about the hospital thing. I just got better. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, none of the doctors could really explain it. I was just like, I want to go outside more and stand in the sun. And I just kept standing in the sun more because I was like, sun breaks down bilirubin, and that mm-hmm. helps. And because it does, UV light helps break down bilirubin faster. Right. And, um, and, and I got better. And uh, so I left. So I attribute a little bit to that. But for the most part, I think it's a lot of spontaneity because I don't think that I didn't think I have that much sunlight. So you left the hospital, yeah, but no, you, my, were, you were still on the transplant list. Oh, yeah. I, 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 at this point, I've been on the trans. Once you, once you get a MELD score in most states, you're on the transplant list. And what is a MELD score? So a MELD score is the model for end-stage liver disease. Mm. So when, once you're in end-stage, they give you this score, and this score is relative to your, um, how your liver is functioning. MELD score is kind of your uh, rank in the waiting list in terms of when you get that, when you get that organ, in this case, liver. So... I was released from the hospital and, you know, I was told about my next treatment, which was uh, Harvoni. Harvoni, right. And, um, and I started that not a month later, you know, just about three, four weeks later, I started that treatment up. And um, so I was, I was stoked. I was ready. I was pumped. I was like, all right, good. All that bad juju was behind me. Let's do this. And, you know, I was excited because, you know, the treatment had, you know, amazing success rates. We're talking 96, 97%. And I was really stoked when at, uh, 12 weeks in, I was at zero. <laughs> so I knew it was working and that was great. Um, and I was really pumped and my whole family was just, everybody was just excited. I'd never seen my dad like smile like that ever when I told him I was, well, when I was told him I was cured and it was, it was just amazing. And it was so I don't, I don't even I don't even know the right word because unfortunately uh, 12 weeks later when the treatment when that treatment ended I didn't even hit the SVR one I my last blood test of my last day of treatment had like a score of like a hundred oh, the virus no. had come back in a small number but it didn't matter it was back and it would just continue to rise. And I think at that point, I really didn't know what to do. I was just kind of lost. I was struggling, um, you know, and I, and I kept, I kept writing and doing other stuff because that was in 2015. And that's when I actually joined Health Union um, and started kind of writing more for them and, and stuff. And I think a lot of, I think, honestly, I think writing about it and talking about these different things, talking about the failures, talking about the challenges is really what helps. It, it's what helps you move forward when you constantly have to deal with, you know, things that are outside of your control and things that fail outside of your control, yeah. you know, try to do what you can. And, you know, it, it, I, I fell into a deep depression and really it was interesting timing because my girlfriend at the time also had become depressed and we were not doing well. And when we broke up, it actually acted as a little bit of a catalyst, which, you know, was great um, because it kind of kicked me out of that funk. And I was like, all right, let's, 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 let's do this. And so I re and so I retooled, refocused, re-energized everything. And I just poured myself into, 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 into 
kicking back into gear because the problem with it was like, like I said, after the previous treatments, you know, I focused on rebuilding myself, pushing past, pushing forward, pushing past it. And that was the one thing I didn't do after the Harvoni treatment. It failed me. Hmm. No, I, I didn't, I didn't rebuild myself. Instead, like I, 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 I sunk, I sunk further down. And the thing is, those things happen to everybody. You know, we can't always be strong all the time. And the benefit is I had all of my friends and family with me, supporting me the whole time. You know, I, I happened to live with friends at the time and they were, they, they kept me afloat both physically and financially and emotionally. And, you know, they, they helped me there. They helped me with little things and it was important, you know, to, to have those things because it kept me going to the next phase, which for me was trying to find a new treatment because these past ones failed. So I needed to know why. And so I learned a lot more about all of the biomechanics of how this treatment works, how these different treatments work and how they work with the liver. And I realized that there was a specific combination of things that I needed. And so I solicited my doctor for those specific things. I said, these are the treatments that'll work. I need these things on here. And she listened to me to a degree. Um, <laughs> new, a, a new drug had come out and that had promising, um, had a promising, you know, a, a promising score again. Um, but the thing was, I looked at it and I didn't see those, the same, you know, conditions that I saw. I didn't see those specific things because there are specific um, proteins, specific non-structural proteins that each one of these treatments takes on. Takes on. I didn't see it in the one she suggested. And for better or worse, I had become too sick for treatment. Um, my liver had progressed to a point where um, my doctor referred to it as an old shoe um, <laughs> because it just kind of looked and functioned like an old shoe. You know what I mean? Like you need to replace this thing, but you've got to keep walking on it because it's the only shoe you got. Mm-hmm. And, and for me at this point, um, I can say with, with complete certainty that my liver was more nodule than actual liver at this point, because the, the growth of, of, of precancerous nodules and just nodules in general was just insane. This is just kind of one of the potential things that happens because not everybody gets the nodules as much as I did. Mm-hmm. And it was just a weird way that my liver happened to do things. Um, and so eventually these nodules started to become a problem because, you know, they started to get to a large size portion where they started to become precancerous. Um, I was unaware of any of this. And so was my doctor, actually. Um, they knew the nodules were growing. They didn't really know to what extent. Be- and the reason why we found this out was because when I had my liver removed, <laughs> um, you know, they found it in there. Um, and so the last three months right before transplant were rough. Um, they were because I was dying and I was just waiting for a transplant call because I couldn't go for treatment. I couldn't go for anything else. So I was just waiting for a liver. My transplant stuff though. Oh my God. The opposite of everything else I've ever experienced. It took two days. I was in and out. It was super quick. Everything went fine. It was a five hour thing. I met my surgeon beforehand. He introduced himself. He was a, he's a great guy. The procedure went, went swimmingly. Um, every, I hit my, I hit my biopsy markers. I hit everything to, uh, I hit everything that we needed to before we, before we got there, before we got to the, the next point, which was treatment. Because just because I had a transplant doesn't mean my hep C is gone. In fact, my viral load in January was 102 million. For perspective, most people don't go past about 20. Usually double digits means you should approach treatment and you should go for treatment. Um, single digits is we're watching you, um, because you should go for treatment soon. Um, I mean, nowadays everyone should go for treatment if you can. Um, but like along that same point though, 
I, 100 and I was, I was floored. It was insane. I was like, let's, let's go on treatment now as soon as we can. Um, and I was lucky enough to have um, Medicare. I had Medi Medi. I had Medicare and Medicaid at the same time. And for us, it covered everything. And it was crazy because it was this 100 because I had to take a specialty combo. I had to do another off-label medication because I did Zepatir Savaldi Ribavirin. I did not just one, but not just two, but effectively three different treatments for hepatitis C, three different um, uh, medications for hepatitis C because mine was just so extra. It was just so complicated for no reason because this is, this, it has all of these mutations that just kept going and just, you know, mine was a reluctant virus to say the least, you know? And so then sixth treatment, the one that would eventually cure me, this one was going to be the one I was stoked. And, um, you know, it's a 12-week treatment, so at six weeks, that's kind of the marker that says, hey, um, if you don't have a viral load of zero by now, you should go for an extension mm-hmm. um, because there's a, there's a threshold within each treatment. And for me, because of my history, it, it's more prudent that if I don't zero out by six weeks, then we should have extended it to 24. Um, unfortunately for me, I didn't zero out until eight. Um, and... Uh, I found out that uh, applying for an extension was incredibly challenging because when I first applied for it, they told me no, they denied it because they typically deny extensions like this again because it's off label. And when I went to uh, appeal it, um, which was about two weeks left in my treatment, um, they they have three days to kind of respond, and so they did, and they denied it again, and so I went through this this, this constant back and forth appeals process. And it got to a point where my treatment was ending mm-hmm. and I was still waiting from a response and my treatment was over in a day. Oh there was no, this, this fight was pointless because I couldn't do anything with it. The only way for me to do this was if it failed, but regardless, I was, I was able to push forward and, um, you know, uh, four weeks later, the SCR four was clear and I was like, okay, all right. We're gonna. We're not gonna worry about the appeal. We're not gonna worry about the stuff right now. We're just gonna hope this works. And if it didn't, then we're gonna try again, and we're gonna do what we can. And the challenge was that I knew that if it, if this failed, everything that I had done in the last three years would be repeated. Yeah. I would go through everything that I went through in the last three years because my liver would, this new liver would just get wrecked by my Hep C. So I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's hope. And. You know, uh, at SCR 12, I hit it and I was stoked. I was just like, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, I'm cured. Asterisk mark. (laughs) I wanted to tell everybody, I'm like, I'm cured, but let's wait till SCR 24 because that's the real official date. Right. Um, And, you know, when that happened, I, 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 I was just, I was kind of in disbelief just because, you know, I've, I've had so many false, you know, things over the time, but it was such a relief. You know, it was such a, it was just such, such a burden had just been lifted off of me because the thing about living with hep C is that there's also this paranoia that kind of comes with it. And I don't think it comes with everybody, but I think it comes with people who are especially concerned that they don't want to infect other people. Mm-hmm. Like that was my worst fear at the end of the day was infecting people close to me. You know, it was this, it was this hard situation where, you know, it's, you know, you want to hold these people close to you, but you're also afraid you might accidentally 
you know, kill them. Mm-hmm. And, and so you don't want, nobody wants that kind of, that kind of emotional burden on anybody. And so this paranoia that I had kind of felt a little bit of ease with this. And, you know, I'd done what I could to mitigate it before. I always carried bleach and rubbing alcohol everywhere just to clean everything I could whenever, whenever any kind of bleed happened. But regardless, you know, that, that feeling, that relief, that just like I have a future. Because the thing is beforehand, I hadn't seen past 30. Since the age of 12, 30 was kind of my end date. That was kind of like, well, because my doc told me, hey, you're going to get a liver transplant in 30 or die. One of the two. Oh, wow. That's pretty much how it's going to happen. And so I didn't see past 30. I didn't see past those points. And being able to turn 31, <laughs> being able to turn 32 was amazing and was this amazing gift. And the thing is, you know, I wouldn't be here clearly if it weren't for, you know, my my liver transplant donor, which unfortunately had to be a uh, cadaver liver, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, fortunately for all of us, you know, it was able, it was viable within me and it worked really well. Um, you know, and, and, and I wouldn't be here today even without all my friends and family supporting me throughout this whole thing. You know, it's those, it's those networks. It's those things that really kind of kept me afloat throughout all of this. And, you know, I think going through all these different treatments and stuff has really given me a really great appreciation for it all, for them all and for it all. Mm. You, you talked about the paranoia of like, you don't want to infect someone that you love that's close to you. Now, hepatitis C is transmitted by blood, right? Correct. And I know there's a stigma around it, especially because some people get it through activities that are described as high risk, such as like injection drug use. How has the stigma yeah. affected you? Uh, unfortunately, the stigma is, 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 is troubling um, because it kind of stems from two different sides. Uh, one side is the fact that um, hepatitis C has been very linked with, as you said, intravenous drug use um, because, you know, there was a lot of pointed fingers towards that for years and it's interesting because only now is it the most common vector, ironically, in the years where they constantly blamed, you know, people who did drugs for the problem. It wasn't the problem. The majority source was, in fact, from medical sources um, mm. because before 92, they didn't test. And so that stigma that was there that, that, that people had associated was really moreover that they treated them like they treated people who did drugs. Um, they treated them like they were less than they treated them, you know, and then like me, I remember going in, I remember going into a doctor's appointment with my doctor, my doctor who had met my mom, who was my mom's doctor, who knew and met both of us, who had seen us both in the same operating in the same like room in the same operating capacity that he had as a doctor. And yet he still questioned me. If I did drugs and if that's how I got hepatitis C, despite the fact that he had the paper and the information in front of him that told him that I was a vertical transmission, the stigma that comes with this is very bizarre because it overlaps fact and it doesn't care about it. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it comes from a person's feelings about somebody who they feel chooses this. And the problem with this is that the stigma that comes along with it is that there's this kind of insinuated choice where that this is a result of something you've done. And the problem with that is the fact that, A, that's not the truth. 
at all. And B, these are people who are sick. You know, these aren't, these are people who need help. These aren't people who, 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 I don't know, dro- who, who tried to, you know, dr- drive into a flooded river to try to cross it. This isn't that situation at all. These are people who got caught up when the river flooded mm-hmm. and are stuck and they're floating through. And everyone's walking by going like it's their choice. And that's really what that stigma is. That's what that stigma kind of feels like. You know, it feels like you're drowning in a river and somebody walks by and goes, oh, just swim. You'll be fine. Hmm. And that's what a lot of it is. A lot of it feels like. And the thing is, it's the second part is the fact that there's this. So there's this medical stigma in, in the in the medical community where doctors um, still treat Pepsi patients, you know, um, as if they're less than, and they treat, it's the same thing with, with, with people who use drugs and neither of those things should be stigmatized. And I want to capitalize on that point. The fact that, you know, while hepatitis, while people with hep C feel it, feel it and face it, it's that same stigma from there. And that's where it stems from. It stems from that. And so if we can kind of address that stigma, then hepatitis C stigma will kind of fade along, along with it. Um, but the second aspect of hepatitis C sigma is its social is its social structure, which is you know where you get into the workplace, where you get into the dating scene, where you get into things like that, and there it crosses into this combination where it's no where it's not just that it's IV drug use, it's also potentially an STD, because some people think because there are certain high risk sexual activities between men who have sex with men that because that specific little asterisk mark is there that anyone could be, could get it from sex. And mm. it was always a troubling conversation to have. Cause I've, I've, I've been on an absurd number of dates and having that conversation um, was always one of the more kind of weird things because I felt obligated to, because you can't, because to me, it was a matter of you can't really have sex with someone. You can't even kind of approach that topic without really kind of talking about these very clear, you know, safety set, safety situations. Because you don't want to put somebody in a situation where they feel that they've been lied to. They feel that they've been deceived after holding someone so close. That's just terrible. Okay. And so you have to kind of have these conversations beforehand. And so this creates this weird stigma there because, you know, people will just kind of go, oh, I don't want to associate with you. You know, but the thing is what the one benefit that I found that comes from that stigma is that you find the people who really are genuine through that because the people who stigmatize other people, not nah, they're the worst. Why would I want to associate with them? You know, yeah. the problem with that, the one downside to that mentality is that it like it, it, it puts them in a box. And the thing is like, because that was my mentality for years and maybe only a few years ago, I really started to kind of break out of that because the thing is in order for it to break down stigma, we have to kind of attack it. We have to walk up to people who are, who stigmatize us and go, Hey, um, you know, let's, let's talk one-on-one as a person, not talking about hepsi, not talking about something else, just get to know me as a person. Because I think when you know somebody a little bit better, a little more personally, it's harder to judge them necessarily about something that you, you know, it's not their fault. Can you tell me about your experience with hepatitis C.net and being one of our advocates? Honestly, uh, health union has been one of like 
the greatest tools and assets that I have ever had access to. Um, the health union is an amazing organization. Hepatitisc.net changed a lot of my life realistically because it gave me a consistent voice that, you know, also helped me out financially, which as, as someone who's disabled, as someone who, you know, is coming from all these places, it's, it's hard, you know, to, to get by. And the thing is not only being able to have a place that where I can speak my voice, that helps, that helps me, you know, uh, mentally as I write all these stories out and talk to people about these things, um, not only helps me kind of reach out to people and, and reach more people, um, you know, it, it just does everything. As an advocate, it amplifies my voice so much more. Um, and the thing is, as a, as a person, it helps me connect with more people who are like me and more people who are going through similar things. You know, I don't think I would have, you know, I don't think I'd be the counselor that I am because I'm now, I'm also a counselor with help for HEP and I, that would have never happened if I didn't, you know, write for hepatitis C.net, you know, they, they pick like really fantastic advocates and have really done a very good job of just putting together this amazing group of people. Um, and to me, I think, learning from these other advocates and learning from these other people has really kind of made me a better advocate and made me a better person. I'd like to thank Rick for sharing his story with us. To read Rick's articles and join the conversation, visit hepatitisc.net. You can find more health communities at health-union.com. Thank you for listening to Living With. I'm Emily Downward.